Why don't you turn in your Bibles to um, Philippians chapter 4. I want to read to you from verse 2 to verse 9. We have just two, God willing, just two messages left in Philippians today and next week. And then um, we'll pick up a new series actually in October. So here we go. It's page 1713. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the back there. Page 1713. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Please remember, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul in a jail cell to a real church. Uh, And these are real people. So if you're wondering, what on earth is a strange way to begin the reading? These guys, these two ladies, had a bit of a problem with each other and were in the church. It's kind of the earthy way the Bible speaks into real scenarios. I entreat you, Odia, he says, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, we don't know who that is, maybe the pastor of the church, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you've been tracking with us through the series, what you will know is that The whole of the letter of the Philippians is marked by this incredible note of happiness. And it's it's bizarre considering Paul's circumstances. He's a man who's in jail. And actually he, he awaits possible execution. But he is evidently a happy man. He's a very content man. A peace filled man. And also he wants to tell the Philippian Christians that they need to be joyful and full of peace just as he is. Uh, If he has reason to have joy, they must also. And really what I've been trying to help you to see is that this idea of Christians experiencing and walking in happiness in day-to-day life and the experience of peace are actually much more central to what it means to be a Christian than perhaps you've ever realized. You may have imagined that Christianity treats the emotions as a peripheral issue And that what matters is belief and obedience. And we hope that it will touch us in good ways on the periphery in our emotional life. What the New Testament shows us actually is that God is very much interested in your well-being as a person. So much so that it puts happiness and the experience of God's peace right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. These are massively important. And I want to show you a few reasons as we kick off why that's the case. It has to do with there being a command, a privilege, and a responsibility. It's a command in the first sense. Did you notice how Paul said rejoice in verse 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. When I start repeating myself to the kids, 
We know things are getting serious. And Paul's been saying it all the way through the letter. Do you, do you understand that this comes with the force of an imperative, a command? How can you tell people that they must be happy? I think that's a difficult question you've got to wrestle with, right? Because I can't go up to you and grab you by the shoulders and say, be happy. And you go, okay, 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 I'm happy. It doesn't quite work like that, does it? But how, how can we understand the force of this, the imperative element? It means, obviously, that there are things we can do, that there are beliefs we need to adopt in our lives. It means that there are, there are ways of thinking that we need to can take control of, that there is, a, there is actually a possibility of walking in obedience to this rather than just thinking I'm the passive recipient of whatever emotions flood over me from day-to-day life. There's actually something you can do about your, your emotional state. That's, so there's, there's a command element to this, the experience of peace and joy. Another thing is that there's a privilege element to this. What is the gospel the message that Christians believe, if it is not about the power of God to change your life. We believe that we have the message which changes lives. And it's not just about change in an objective way in terms of the experience of being forgiven by God and knowing that he has changed your status from being outside to inside, from sinner to saint. It's not just about those objective things, but it's about the subjective power of God in your life to change you from the inside out, including rewiring your mind and your heart. This is a privilege that Christians can walk in. The godliest Christians I know are also the happiest, by the way. So, there's a privilege element. There's also this third aspect, which is responsibility. What I mean here is I think it goes to the heart of what it of the credibility of you as a believer and indeed of the whole church in relaying or portraying or being the shot front window display of the gospel to the world around us. You think about this. Have you ever, have you ever had the experience of walking into um, a barber's or a hairdresser's and taking one look at the barber or the hairdresser and thinking, I don't want that guy or that girl to cut my hair. Because <laughs> looking at the way they've styled themselves... You know, you immediately, they lose credibility if they've, you know, if they look greasy-haired or they've got a bad haircut or whatever's going on. That, you know, you look at them and you immediately think, I wish I hadn't sat down and booked my appointment in this place. Also, if you, you book in with a personal trainer and your trainer just kind of arrives breathless <laughs> and slightly overweight and sweaty, say, okay, let's, let's get going, you immediately lose confidence in their ability, don't you? When you sign up to be a, to a personal trainer, you expect them to have a physique like, like an Adonis, you know, like, like Dan Tan, like just <laughs> muscles rippling, which weighs the beach type of thing, because it speaks to their credibility. So when the world is looking at us as believers, and uh, they're asking, is, is the thing, are the things that you believe true? Then one of the things they're looking at, and probably, probably the thing they most are interested in, is whether we as People who profess the name of Jesus have the experience of happiness and peace as a result of that. Now, please, I know that there are, there's space for all kinds of experiences in the Christian life. God allows us to be subjected to suffering. God allows us and is sovereign over the, the experiences of our lives that shape us. And not all of them are happy and peaceful experiences. We recognize and acknowledge these things. However, please remember that Paul suffered more than most. And when he's telling them 
to have joy, to have peace. He is concerned that the church be a witness to the world around them. Just as he was concerned in his position, the only thing he cared about was that he was showing the soldiers who were holding him under arrest that Jesus is Lord. And his emotional well-being would have stood out in that prison cell. I guarantee no one else was happy like Paul was. He probably irritated them with how happy he was in jail. Especially the soldiers had to be chained to him. Do you remember that? It's how it worked in those days. Now, if this is the case, if peace and joy are central to the Christian life and we are called to obey it, to walk in the privilege of it, to, to have a responsibility for, to, to embody this, then we need to ask, you need to ask, is it true of you? Do you in your day-to-day life, do, you, do people comment on the joy that is true of you? Do they comment on the peace that you have in the face of all circumstances? Please answer that honestly when you think about your, your life outside of church. And for those of us when that is not the case, we need to start to identify some of the reasons. And this passage, actually, the whole of the passage has that as the theme. And I want to look at three areas that could be, that, that could be relevant to you, that, that are joy stealers and peace stealers. It has to do with our relationship to others, our relationship to God, and our relationship to ourselves, to yourself. We're going to look at each of those in turn. First of all, it's to do with your relationship to others. Now, I think we must agree that relationships are absolutely central to our sense of well-being and joy and peace in day-to-day life. A lot of misery, to put it negatively, stems from relational fragmentation, doesn't it? That when, when, when friendships and family and work relationships are breaking down, these things trouble you in your heart. They, 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 it affects you. I was amazed to read an article that came out a month ago in, uh, in The Atlantic, that American magazine, um, by a lady called Jean Twen. She's a psychologist. And she was talking about, she, she asked the question, uh, the title of the article, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And this lady specializes in studying um, generational changes. She looks, she charts on graphs, um, all kinds of aspects of our psychological well-being and our lives, and looks at trends and what's going on. And usually she says, in, normal, in the normal run of things, the graphs show smooth lines up and down on various issues, you know, sociability, um, you know, well-being, all these kinds of things. And she says, she, she writes right at the start of the article, around 2012, I noticed abrupt abrupt shifts in team behaviors and emotional states. The gentle slopes of the line graphs became steep mountains and sheer cliffs, you know, up, down. And many of the distinctive characteristics of the millennial generation began to disappear. She says that the modern teens are experiencing a a phenomenal change in their experience of life. And actually, most of it is negative, she says. Suicide rates are on the up. Uh, there's a lot of uh, senses of depression and not w- much well-being. And she asked the question, what happened in 2012 that made the difference? And the answer that she comes up with is it's when the iPhone became ubiquitous in teenage hands. And uh, I, I only point that out because it shows us how much your experience of relationships are central to your sense of well-being in day-to-day life. Uh, the, the problem that she's identified, of course, is that teens spend most of their time in front of a screen, often in isolation, rather than together in community. So obviously, 
our relationships are hugely important to our sense of well-being. We know this. It's, we know it intuitively, even if sometimes we walk in a, with a sense of denial. And the Bible says, shows us in its storyline that right from the start, it was community that began to be fractured by our sin. Genesis 4, which is the chapter right after the fall happens, Adam and Eve eat the fruit and God banishes them from the garden. The first story that's relayed after that is a story of one brother, Cain, killing another brother, Abel, because enmity came between family. The breakdown, the fragmentation of relationships began to affect well-being right from the start. Envy gave birth to murder, gave birth to exile. And these same dynamics are at work all the time in our relationships. Competitiveness and envy, which gives birth to anger, mainly not murder, but the equivalent, hating someone in your heart or distancing yourself from someone, pretending as though they don't exist, uh, being angry with them, all these kinds of things. I was interested to read um, Matthew Hosier, who preached here a few couple of months ago, wrote an article this week about the program Eden. I didn't watch it, but it was apparently a Channel 4 thing, one of those kind of social experiments they love in Channel 4, where they put a bunch of people in, in a, I think it was in Scotland, in the wilderness to, to survive for a year, men and women. And uh, actually, the, the program kind of dwindled, and apparently they didn't really let the guys know properly. It was meant to be showing every week. But in the end, what Channel 4 did was give a recap, a few nights programming of what had happened over the course of that year. And Matthew Hosey was commenting on when you strip away all of the kind of social constructs of our politeness and our normal ways of interacting with each other, which are are kind of the norms of modern day society, what you end up with is what's really in the heart starts to emerge. The men were sexually kind of um, uh, sort of uh, perverted in the way they speak spoke about and to the women and they, they gave the women these subjected roles and they compete against one another in this ugly way and it's really just pull back the, the social constructs of our modern life and what you end up with is the heart just begins to express itself this ugliness is actually only just below the surface isn't it all the time it's not far beneath the surface uh, we suppress it we hide it but why does why is community so hard because of our, our sin, because we are broken, because we, we are not godly towards one another in the way we should be as, as humans. What would it look like when a, a person is holy towards another person? They'd be selfless, affectionate in the right way, pure, uh, clean, serving of another person, non-competitive, empathetic, loyal, courageous on behalf of defending others. But what does sin do to us? It It warps all of those things and turns them upside down. We become proud, we become competitive, we become self-centered, we become insecure, we become selfish, we become withdrawn, we become angry. All these things are true, aren't they? Even if you hide it, they're right there. The gospel is designed to heal relationships. Jesus died on the cross to deal with the problem of our sin so that he could remend, could mend the broken relationships of humanity. He could reconcile people to one another in a new family called the church. That's the storyline of the Bible in a couple of sentences. How can we do it practically? A few tips that come out of this passage. 
First is you've got to own responsibility to fix things when things go wrong. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I love this because you imagine what would, what would have happened is Paul sent this letter by some, some guy um, who would have carried it to, to Philippi and uh, somebody would have opened it out in a church on Sunday and read it out in one sitting to the whole church. And some people, you know, by chapter three, maybe they're nodding off a little bit. You know, it happens occasionally. Not with you guys, you know, but obviously in some churches, you're nodding off occasionally. And, you know, Euodia sat on one side and Syntyche sat on the other side. And they're nowhere near each other. And maybe they've even turned their backs to each other a little bit. And these are godly women. These are women who've, who've actually been very integ- integral to the life of the church. But for some reason, this rift has come between them. And the minute Paul writes, and this read out, I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche. I imagine the guy reading it blushed a little bit. The people who were sleeping immediately woke up and were like, whoa, hope he doesn't mention me next. <laughs> and Euodia and Syntyche, if their minds were on each other and rather on what Paul was saying, suddenly they felt a weight of sense of shame, but also responsibility. We've got to do something about the problem between us right now. Paul knows about it, and he's in Rome, a thousand miles away, in a jail cell. Our fight is that bad. Now, this brings attention to the fact that in the Bible... When you experience relational rift with another person, a breakdown of relationship, do you know it is always your responsibility to fix it? Whether you're the person who did the wrong or the person who was wronged. It's evident from the way Jesus teaches. In, uh, in Matthew 5, he says, if you go and bring your gift to the altar, and then you remember, you suddenly think, oh, my brother has something against me. He says, leave your gift there. Don't, don't. Don't sacrifice or offer your gift at that point. He says, run, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and offer your gift. In other words, don't offer this hypocritical, shallow, hollow worship of God when you know that you've hurt another brother in the faith. Go and sort that out first, because God's actually very much interested in community, not just your one-on-one relationship with the Lord and your experience of his goodness. That's just super spirituality. You know, people think I'm a godly person because I love worshiping, but actually... They've hurt people left, right, and center. It's, it's nothing. And says, deal with that, he says. But then later on in Matthew 18, he puts it differently. He says, if your brother sins against you, so you're in this situation, you're the victim. You think you've been wrong. You've been offended. He says, go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. And then there's a whole procedure that Jesus instructs us to follow. In other words, if, if you've been the wronged person, it's also your job to fix the relationship. And this is the, the responsibility Paul puts on Yodi and Syntyche because he wants peace and joy in the community. So you guys need to get in a room and sort out your problem right now. Friends, if, you, if that's true of you, if you've got a problem with someone in your life, maybe even in the church, today is the time to deal with it. You don't hesitate. Here's another tip he tells us. We're actually called to help others as well in this because he says... I, I ask you also, true companion, whoever this guy is, to help the women who've labored side by side. So maybe you're sat there thinking, hmm, it's interesting, but I don't have a problem with anyone else. I'm fine. Things are cool with me, my family, the church, my work colleagues, whatever. And Paul says, no, you know, if you, if you know of a problem with other people, do you know it's your job to get involved and fix it? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Why sons of God? Because Jesus himself, the Son of God, was by nature and by role the ultimate peacemaker when he shed his blood on the cross for us. So 
So Christians care about friction in relationships. Even if it's not your business, they care about it because anything which damages the community, the family of the church, matters to us, matters to God, and we're called to be peacemakers. Here's the third tip Paul shows us. You've got to let Jesus shape your, your actions and reactions, how you interact with others. And here's how Paul puts it. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, verse 5. He uses a weird word, reasonableness, which apparently is very hard to translate. It means something like magnanimous. It means that you have a kind of generosity towards other people. Now, the question is, are you, are you a kind of a touchy person? I don't mean like tactile. I mean like... <laughs> You know, not inappropriately tactile, but rather that when people, when people like slightly criticize you or, or maybe uh, step in on your turf or something, you, you immediately feel annoyed with people. Are you sensitive to any criticism? Are you, are you easily angered? You know, Jesus showed us what it means to live a life that is the magnanimous, which means you're generous towards other people and you're not always insisting on the letter of the law. That's what the word means. But you're kind and generous-hearted. Martin Lloyd-Jones described it as going through life with shock absorbers. People are always going to bounce off you, but you're okay because your peace is in God. You don't take offense easily. You know, it's, it's a bad thing, isn't it, to go through life being touchy because people eventually just learn to avoid you. And, and they don't want to experience your anger, your wrath. Friend, if this, if this speaks to you at all, you must do something. Paul, Paul, I wouldn't want you to be embarrassed the way Paul embarrassed you, Odio and Syntyche. Imagine if I was my job today, I'd just be like, I know that there's something going on between this guy and this guy. And we need to sort this out. Imagine if that was how I dealt with things. We're not going to do that, right, are we? So God says just deal with it yourself. Okay, let's move on. Relationship to uh, others. The second thing is your relationship to God. Lack of peace and joy can stem from the inadequate relationship to God, can't it? I don't want you to misunderstand that I don't think it's possible to be less acceptable to him. I don't think it's possible to ever lose the love and kindness of God in your life. I think the cross makes... It's so that a believer knows that they are always able to come to God and be in his presence and are welcomed. However, it's also true that the enjoyment of intimacy and fellowship and knowing God's favor on your life depends on many things. And one of them, the area that Paul puts his finger on here is something which I think is probably... More, considered more important in the New Testament than we tend to recognize is the, is the issue of anxiety. He says, do not be anxious about anything, in verse 6. What are we talking about here? Well, I used, for many years, most of my life, I, I thought of anxiety as, I thought about it in, in a particular picture in my mind that basically excluded me. It was, it was, it was the person biting their nails and fretting as their hair goes white and, uh, and, and losing sleep with bloodshot eyes. You know, that was anxiety to me. It's something obvious. It's someone who's, who's frantically running around trying to take control. And for some people, that's exactly what anxiety looks like in your life. But it's actually only more recently 
that I, I think by God's grace was able to see that even though I'm much more of a chilled out person in, in my day to day, you know, how I conduct myself, that anxiety was real for me, is real, is an issue I have to face up to and, and acknowledge before God because it actually has all kinds of ugly fruit in my life. And so maybe you're the kind of person who thought, oh, anxiety is that person's problem. It's not my problem. But maybe some of these things you recognize. Let me just describe what anxiety can look like in your life. It can look like heaviness. You go through life with a sense of heaviness. It can look like dread. That there are things looming that you kind of feel like dark shadows in the future. It can feel like stress. What is stress? Stress is the 21st century manly way of describing anxiety. You know, I work so hard and yeah, I get stressed. It's basically a way of trying to make, making anxiety sound a bit more butch, right? It's ba- it's because no one goes, I work a lot because I'm so worried. You don't say that, do you? But it's the same thing. Stress and anxiety are one and the same thing. They're just different words. But if you're a person who's constantly stressed, do you know that means you're an anxious person? Escapism. You find that the instant you can, you jump down the rabbit hole or bury your head in the sand like an ostrich. And uh, whether it's into Netflix, whether it's into social media, whether it's into whatever, for some people it's that need to get away. They always have to get out of the city at the weekend. And why? Because for some reason... You're anxious in your day-to-day life here. I think if you were experiencing the peace of God, you wouldn't feel that urgency to get away all the time. It could be sleeplessness. You find that you lie awake at night, unable to sleep. And after you've eliminated the problem of drinking too much coffee, you still can't sleep. Do you avoid responsibility? Find it hard to take things on because you feel you're already carrying too much. Are you, do you have high blood pressure? It would be surprising for many of you, if you're in your 20s, it's not impossible. <laughs> Certainly this begins to show itself as you get older. Do you have a worrying mind, busying with the things that are going on in your life? Do you... Are you seeking comfort? Are you overeating, overindulging in, in some kind of comfort? Friends, these are all ways of recognizing anxiety in, in our lives. Why is it a problem? Because it says that you believe in a small God. It says that you believe in a God who is not in control and who doesn't care, and can't help. That's why anxiety is a problem, because it's really rooted in unbelief and sin, isn't it? I'm not saying that to point the finger. I had to repent of this all the time, actually, now that I've seen it in my own heart. So let's be clear. If anxiety is a widespread problem, and it is... What is the solution? Can I just knock off a couple of options here? Not dismiss entirely, but just say, look, let's not go here first. One of them is, it's not medication. 
I don't think there's a problem with Christians having medication as and when it's needed. However, I don't think medication changes your heart or your mindset, the ways that you think. And so if all you can do is medicate, whether professionally or unprofessionally, because people try all kinds of things, don't they, to soothe their anxious spirit, or they're going to the doctor or just drinking too much, it will not, the problem is, of course, it never solves the underlying issues of the heart. Maybe it can be a temporary crutch to get you on the right footing, but friend, you must deal with the heart issue because this is about your relationship with God primarily. Another thing it's not, it's not to be dealt with, I don't think, by meditation. The reason I say that is that I have a problem with Christians finding solutions in Buddhist ideas when the Bible has given us the answer. Now maybe you're a person who's dabbled in this and that, and fine, look, we can talk about it all day. I don't, I don't mind, we can disagree on this. But friend, please don't go there unless you've done this and, and discovered that God is inadequate, which you never will. So the answer that the Bible gives us is very clear. It says, Pray. I think a lot of people go elsewhere because they have not prayed or they have not learned to pray in the right way. Let's dig into a little bit to what Paul says here about prayer in the life of the believer. A prayer that cures anxiety. A few pointers I just want you to notice. Firstly, it's prayer in everything. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything, he says. Do you bring everything to God in prayer? All of your concerns. Some people think that it's wrong to go to God with a long list of things that are going on in your life because they call it, you know, you can't just go there like, like with a shopping list. But you know, God actually wants you to recognize that he's your provider of everything. So to go with him, to him with a longer list actually means you trust him more, I think. And other people, you know, they think that God's above certain things in your life. Now, yeah, maybe he's above your sports. I'll put it, I, I think I can recognize that. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. Um, but everything else, everything else we bring to God. It's in everything. Let's not exclude some part of our life as though God isn't interested. He is. Here's another tip. It's prayer and supplication. It's very interesting that Paul makes this distinction because he says, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. And I think the reason he does that is because prayer is a very broad term and there are kinds of prayers that do not solve your anxiety problem. A way of praying that will not help you. Let me give you some examples. I'm not sure that rote praying, praying by rote will help you where your prayer is just reciting the same words that you learned in assembly as a child. I'm not convinced that reading your prayers will help you. I think that some people can find help, obviously, in historic prayers that have been written and recorded through centuries, but generally speaking, prayer is meant to be from the heart. Jesus is very clear about that, and he didn't want empty prayer. And so long as you are speaking from the heart, usually you will find your own words to pray. I'm not convinced that... Prayers that are just too generalized are going to help you in this. You know where we, we just pray, Lord, bless my work today. But you don't bring to him the specific aspects of your work which are stressing you out. 
Sometimes we're just content to say a few generalized prayers. And we're not specific. I'm not convinced that saying your prayers, like the old-fashioned way of thinking of, it, of your prayer time, they used to call saying your prayers, which is a picture of someone kneeling by the bed at, at, at bedtime and just saying your prayers before you climb into bed. It was kind of a routine thing. Of course, there must be some routine to our lives, but the Bible shows us that when people are struggling, there's a wrestling with God in prayer. A kind of determination to wield... You get your answer, a persistence, and it's much more than just that kind of polite English kneeling at the bedside in your bedgown saying your prayers. I'm not convinced as well that the kind of trend for silence in prayer is going to help you particularly. There's not much in the Bible about being silent in prayer. Prayer is primarily a vocal exercise and ideally out loud. So when Paul says by prayer... And supplication. What does he mean? Here's one definition. It's when a junior person casts himself upon the mercy of a senior or more powerful person. Just in case we're still not quite sure what he's talking about, he puts it very explicitly. Let your requests be made known to God as though he doesn't already know them. Now we know he does. Jesus said that in his teaching on anxiety. Your father knows before you ask him. But it's still important that you... As a child, come to him and be very specific in supplication, casting yourself upon him and naming the things that are on your mind and on your heart. That's supplication. And please, what I'm encouraging you to do is ask yourself, have I ever really dealt with the things going on in my life like this? Maybe you've, you've tried, you think you've tried prayer, but you realize you, you haven't really prayed the way The Bible teaches you to pray with this honesty, with this specificity, with this absolute dependence. You know, in my experience, there there come points in my life where things feel so overwhelming that I, I have certain ways I have to go to God. And one of them is, you know, every now and then I've just got to, I just have to drop everything and go on a long prayer walk because it's the only way I can kind of untangle all the things that are going on in my mind. You know when you've got a million thoughts spinning around and, and you don't feel like God's with you? My friend, I know what that feels like. I have to go for an hour or two and just untangle it all before God and just talk it through. And That's my, my thing. It may not be your thing. My thing happens to also be Jesus' thing, which is pretty cool because he did that as well. So I, I'm encouraging you to do Jesus' thing. But... Uh, <laughs> Prayer and supplication. Here's the last thing. With thanksgiving. Why is thanksgiving so vital? I think, for one thing, it avoids us slipping into, you know, that concern people have, a shopping list mentality in prayer. You know, you can't think of God as just being like Amazon Prime. Isn't it just the most convenient thing in the world? You can, sometimes you can order stuff in the morning and it comes by mid-afternoon. It's ridiculous. But if all you think about of God is that kind of impersonal click, 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 and obviously, that's not a due reverence. And I think part of the reason we bring thanksgiving when we pray is because it inculcates a sense of worshipful reverence before God. But also this, you begin to experience the answer to your prayer even as you pray it. That when you give thanks to God in prayer, do you know that your anxieties start to melt? It's bizarre and powerful, but it is also true. Anyone who's done this can testify to it. Somehow, in the act of giving thanks to God, 
everything begins to change in your mind. If you have this insurmountable thing going on, start to give thanks as you pray about it. Watch how God just rewires your mind and your heart. He then says a promise that you'll experience the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. This is why I'm strong on not, as Christians, primarily going to other things. Is Because why would you go to a secondary option when you can have supernatural peace from God? He says it's a peace which is irrational. It surpasses understanding because it makes no sense. It doesn't make sense in the face of what you're facing. Like Paul in a jail cell may be about to die. It doesn't make sense in view of your personality. That you're maybe a highly strong person. This is what it means to have peace which surpasses understanding. People look at you and be, what on earth has happened to you? Oh, I prayed. It reminds me actually. Jeremy, um, his colleagues know that he's more chilled out when he prays. And it got to a point where one of his colleagues would tell him, you need to go and pray now, even though this guy's not a Christian. <laughs> but that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's the peace which surpasses understanding. And they're saying, Jeremy, you're wired this way to take responsibility, to care a little too much and to get involved a bit too much and to be a bit frantic when you're leading us as a manager. The peace which surpasses understanding is the supernatural grace of God to you to change you in a moment. Wouldn't you want to have that rather than 10 minutes of, of mindfulness? Yeah? Okay. I said too much. <laughs> Expect emails tomorrow. So. <laughs> All right. Um, finally. Finally. We talked about your relationship to um, others. We talked about your relationship to God. I want to also just talk about your relationship to yourself. This is also part of it. What do I mean? Well, a lot of the loss of peace and joy. Remember when we're dealing with these enemies to peace and joy. A lot of the loss of peace and joy is down to your own problematic relationship with yourself. What I can describe as kind of a poor governance of your life. Bad self-leadership. It's what the Proverbs describe as folly as opposed to wisdom. And particularly, Paul highlights a couple of areas. He talks about the life of the mind. And he talks about habits, practices, as he, as he rounds off this section. And I want to just very briefly deal with both of those. He says, finally, brothers, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He's concerned with the, the way we govern our thoughts. Because it touches on peace and joy, doesn't it? I wonder, you know, the thing that really strikes me, when Paul wrote this, could he have imagined the challenge of obeying this in 21st century? About, uh, probably close to 60 years ago now, uh, let's not do maths on the spot, a while ago, my... uh, (laughs) My grandmother bought a television when my mum was um, a child or a teen. And, uh, you know, in the day when televisions were beginning to get into people's homes. And uh, when this thing arrived, it said on the outside of the box, let the whole world into your home. And uh, my, my grandparents were, they were from a kind of um, a Baptist church, a kind of fairly strict Baptist sort of um, way of practicing faith, which 
often had an interest in um, slightly overly strict rules that governed your day-to-day life. Like they frowned upon dancing or um, going to the cinema or any of those kinds of things. And that was kind of often things that characterized Christians in the mid-20th century. And, uh, you know, one of the great concerns, which is a biblical concern, was the concern about worldliness. Worldliness, thinking like the world when we're meant to think like Jesus. She saw that slogan on the box, let the whole world into your home. And a flag went up in her brain. It was like warning sirens. She immediately sent it back to the shop. They had no TV. That's a pretty radical solution, right? Now I wonder how she would have coped, what Paul would have been saying to us when we, we carry these things in our pockets, a window into the world and all of its ugliness and beauty, but without any barriers. We have unlimited access. We also have pretty much constant bombardment. So how do you walk in obedience to the command to think about the right things when you have the option to look at all kinds of things and also those things are are getting in on your day? You know, whoever said that the news is a neutral thing? That that you, you have to know what's going on in the world all the time? But we, we have these notifications on our phones to tell us whenever stuff's happening in the world. Now, I, I'm not saying that's, I'm not trying to make a comment on whether that's right or wrong. What I'm trying to say is it's not neutral. It's not nothing. It matters. Now, if that's true of the news, how much more is it true of all the other things that, that happen on that screen? All the other screens in your life. Do you know Jesus actually spoke into this? It wasn't as though he was silent on this. He said this. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. In other words, what you let in through the windows colors everything inside of you. I know I've narrowed this down to just one thing, really, but I think it's a pretty pressing issue. I don't think there's ever been a more urgent need to take control of our thought life than now. Paul was also interested in your habits, because he he finished in this way, this section, he said, what you've learned, he uses four words, learned, received, heard, and seen in me, practice, or make these things a habit, and the God of peace will be with you. It's interesting, isn't it? The God of peace is with you when you habitually walk in the ways that please God. Does that negate the grace of God? As though God is only near to perfect people? No, it it doesn't. That's not the meaning here. What it means is that you know experientially that there are things you can do with your time and with your life which create a sense of distance from God, not knowing him, not pressing into him, not experiencing his peace. And there are things that that a lot of writers have called habits of grace, which mean that you experience his nearness in day-to-day life. Even Jesus, even Jesus had to be deliberate and very 
intentional about the way he spent his time and the things he did, his habits, so that he could walk in the sunshine of the favor of his father and know the nearness of intimacy with the father. And yet we can be mindless to the ways that we are living. It's bad governance, isn't it? It's bad leadership of ourselves. And there's an invitation here, friend, that you know you can experience peace and joy in your daily life in increasing measures day after day when you will invite the Lord to be the Lord of your thoughts and of your actions, your practices, your habits. And that's such a hopeful thing. Because it means you're not doomed to be the miserable person you are, if that's true of you. (laughs) There is joy. There is calm. There is God's shalom available to you. Friends, as we just close off, I want you to notice this this one final thing. That in all these areas that Paul's touched on, he's, he's very clear that this is... This is for the the Christian. This is for the believer. This is what we get to enjoy because of the gospel, because of Jesus dying for us and, and, and purchasing our forgiveness when he died on the cross. He says things like this, that relationships, he said to Euodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. In other words, the kind of enjoyment of peace and of fellowship that you, that you can have is yours because Christ shed his blood for you. So you can't hold bitterness against each other anymore. He says of the peace of God and the experience through prayer that God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's describing supernatural peace, wasn't I? Do you know that that is a gift for those who are in Christ? It's what the New Testament describes a Christian to be. That you are in his, in his family, in the fold. Even at the end there where it says um, about the God of peace will be with you. You know, this whole element of him being with you. I'm saying this because, friends, some of you... You are not believers in Jesus, and you know it, and you've, you've maybe been wrestling with this for a long time. And you wonder why you're not experiencing the benefits that I'm describing, and the clear answer is because you're not surrendered your life to the Lord. For those of us who are Christians, we must let the death and resurrection of Jesus shape our lives, shape our emotions, shape our experience of day-to-day life, that we would be happy people. We have the greatest privilege on earth, don't we, to call ourselves friends of Jesus, the Lord who died for us. Are you walking in the good of that?